following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. Use your Bible or the Pew Bible. Turn to John chapter 9. Last time we came to the end of 8, which brought at least to a kind of climax a lengthy discussion between Jesus and Jewish leaders of the temple, increasing in its ferocity, I think you could say, and the anger with which accusations were brought against Jesus so that by the time he was saying, truly I say before Abraham was, I am, those leaders hearing his claim to deity in that were ready to stone him. But the end of chapter 8 says that he was able to escape. We know not exactly how, but he was able to leave that and not be harmed. And now the, uh, the critique of Jesus is not over with. Although you won't hear too much of it in this passage, I'll read John 9, 1 through 25. It does continue very much, especially in the later part of this chapter 9. Listen as I read John 9, beginning at verse 1 through 25. As he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva, anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered the man, called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, and now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see." Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? There was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man 
who received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. How he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed if anyone would confess Jesus to be Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God now. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And this is God's holy word. More than a decade ago, in the aftermath of the terrorist acts against America on September 11, 2001, I, along with you, listened to many statements from different ministers and people leading memorial services around the country. I heard some strange interpretations of calamity and crisis, strange at least in terms of biblical thinking. I heard one minister at a national memorial service say this, even God must be amazed this day. He was wrong. God was not amazed. I heard a TV preacher say, evil comes solely from men, so God certainly is not in control of these events. In other words, men did it, God had nothing to do with it or could not have anything to do with it. Those, each in their own way, were foolish statements. To millions of people, the so-called problem of pain is an ugly blemish on the face of of Christianity. I saw a girl in a store not so long ago, a teenager, I believe she was, and my, I was a little ways from her, and I saw that she appeared to have the absolutely worst black eye I've ever imagined anyone having. And, and I, I was about to maybe make a comment, how did you get that or whatever? And when I got a little closer, I realized it wasn't a black eye, it was a birthmark. And it must occasion an awful lot of comment in her life. Well, people think that that's the way Christianity is. We have a terrible blemish on our face, and that is what we call the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. Usually when unbelievers say, well, I'm an agnostic or I'm an atheist, and you say, well, why? Some of their answer why is going to say something like, I cannot believe in your supposedly good God who allows babies to be born with deformities or to die. Or I cannot believe a God who loves would have permitted the Holocaust of World War II. Or I cannot believe the God that let my 55-year-old mother be killed by a drunk driver. On and on and on it goes. Something happened. God was responsible and therefore he cannot be believed in. C.S. Lewis summarized the problem by writing this one time, quoting him, If God is good, he must wish his creatures happiness. If God is almighty, he can accomplish anything he chooses. But since his creatures are not universally happy, many assume that God lacks 
goodness or power or both. Putting it quite simply, many people feel that God has some explaining to do to them. You can take the root of Buddhism or Christian science, both of whom in their own ways basically deny the problem of pain. Pain isn't real. Suffering isn't real. Reach a certain state of consciousness and you won't have to worry about it. I'm sorry I can't go there. I choose biblical Christianity that has a more subtle but also much more satisfying answer. As Scripture teaches that God did not create suffering, but He did create man in His image with freedom. And we use that freedom to choose to sin, and we continue to do so on a daily basis. And we should not be amazed that mankind, with all the millions and billions of us who've been sinning all of our lives, have multiplied in infinite ways all kinds of consequences of our sin until it's no longer just an issue of my one sin brought this one consequence, but the millions and billions of times that mankind have sinned have unleashed consequences that are tangled and broad that spread in such a way that they touch people or bite people like a rattlesnake without our ever being able to trace out exactly how one particular tragedy was traced to one sin. Even nature, we're told, is involved in human sin. The Bible teaches that the oceans and the mountains and the skies are actually groaning because of what we've done to the planet. And then we see a cataclysm when some nation that has thousands of poor people's farms on a low-level ocean plain and the tsunami sweeps in and wipes out thousands of people and we say, why did God do that? Well, there were a lot of bad human decisions involved and the planet itself seems to be reacting in ways to what we've done to it in, in manners where we can't trace one consequence to another, but people are hurt and people suffer. Well, our text tells us of this classic case of a man born blind in the first century, thus doomed to become a beggar because there was no social welfare network to help him out. Unless his family would care for him or pamper him, he would probably have to sit in the street and hold out a tin cup and subsist the best that he could. And you notice that to the disciples of Jesus who weren't rated too high for their compassion on this occasion. They walked by, and, and this man wasn't a person. He, he, I don't even think they considered his hurt or his, his suffering very much. He was an object lesson, and they looked at him and said, Lord, look at that guy there on the curb. Who sinned? Did he sin before he was born? Or did his parents sin? That must have been one of those two things, Lord, because we know that sin and consequence have a one-on-one relationship. So who did it that he was born blind? I don't think they cared very much for the person they were talking about. Who sinned here? Well, let's see today how our text and the answer of Jesus, and I'm concentrating most on the first few verses today, really not all the details that follow how our text rebukes false assumptions about suffering, first of all. If you begin with wrong questions, you can't expect right answers. Lord, who sinned here was primarily a wrong-headed question which could not yield a correct answer. Thirty years ago, a popular book was published 
Some of you will remember it. Maybe you even have it on your shelf at home called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People by a man named Rabbi Harold Kushner. I remember this book's publication distinctly because people in my church brought it to church and said, Pastor, are you aware of this book? This is a great book. Well, I looked into the book, and I can give you the summary of the basic thing. Rabbi Kushner was a compassionate man. He wanted to comfort people. It wasn't very biblical in what he wrote. And he said, well, you know, tragedy just happens. Pain just happens. It happens to every kind of person, good or bad. And actually, God can't even do anything about it. And I was just totally amazed that people from evangelical churches found that a helpful book. I found it a terrible book. Rabbi Kushner's answer to the World Trade Center coming down on that terrible day 11 or 12 years ago now was, well, those folks that were crushed to death in the stairwells wasn't their fault, and even God couldn't do anything about it. Well, I wondered why Mr. Kushner did not devote some close attention. Being a man of the Old Testament, he should have studied Job. Job, who was called a godly or blameless man, a good man, if you will, relatively speaking, Job was good. He wasn't perfect. He was a sinner. But he stood out among his generation as a man who worshiped God and cared for his family and and did a lot of right things. And then he spent the whole book pleading with God as to why in the world did he deserve having all his children wiped out, his flock stolen, and disease all covering his body. Why, God? What did I do? Initially, he wasn't asking that question, but his fine friends came along and induced him to ask that question because they all said, Job, we know you did something wrong. Fess up. Come on. Get honest. And Job felt like he was fighting God with one hand and his friends with the other. And if the book of Job tells us anything, at the end you come out with this conclusion that if life is a game of monopoly in which some people are more noble, more moral to start out with, that there is no get-out-of-suffering-free card for those who go to church more often. That's not the way it works. What mattered at the end of the book of Job was the grandeur of God. Job worshiping his God and ending his I've got my rights and you need to explain yourself manner with God. And he ended up on his face worshiping and saying, God, you have a right to do whatever you will do. And that is the posture I will adopt. Yes, indeed, there are people whose goodness is relatively greater than others, but it's only relative. We're all sinners before God. And so-called bad things come into all of our lives. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled, we know there's no truly 100% good person. Romans 5 says, By one man sin entered the world, and death came by sin. And you have this sense that Romans talks about things multiplying out in all directions from that moment onward. So that sin effects came and spoiled the natural creation, spoiled human relationships. In the very children of Adam and Eve, we had brother killing brother, and soon a a whole race of violent men challenging one another with weapons and and with uh, murder and, and revenge and everything else. And we're made to believe that sin percolates its effects out 
into a dozen and a hundred and a thousand generations until it affects the planet and things like earthquakes. And I'm not going to debate global warming with you, but there are certainly different things happening with our planet that haven't happened before, and avalanches and floods and hurricanes and storms and all these things. And you can't say, oh, look at that avalanche, that mudslide that wiped out a village. George Smith caused that. No, George Smith didn't cause that. But the despoiling of our planet by man had a role in that. And if you could somehow trace things back enough, Alaska oil spills and Ebola viruses and all of this, maybe a damaged gene somewhere in the body of my great-great-grandfather is going to mean that in five years I'll have pancreatic cancer because of that gene of a man I never even met. Was that my grandfather's fault? Did he sin? Human beings rejecting the Creator's plan and asserting themselves brought a general curse on the creation, on their families, on themselves. And if Adam had never fallen, we have to believe the biblical diagnosis is there would be no autistic children. There would be no ALS. You wouldn't have to dump the ice bucket on your head on Facebook. And guess what? The Palestinians and Israelis might be the best of neighbors and friends. And the World Trade Towers might stand shining and tall still in New York City today. Jesus taught things that weren't simplistic on this. I refer you to Luke 13.4 when he was addressing the same issue of kind of who sinned there. That's what he was talking about in Luke 13, 4, when he spoke about a tower that fell down. It didn't crush thousands. It crushed 18, to be exact, the Tower of Siloam, somewhere there in Jerusalem near this pool where the man washed. We don't know what happened. Probably some kind of a construction accident. Maybe perhaps somebody was uh, crooked and uh, didn't put the right amount of straw or binder or something in the mortar of the bricks and and that cheating uh, caused the tower to be defective. I don't know. The cause of it all wasn't the issue. Jesus was concerned about the result of it, the fact that people who didn't cause it to fall had it fall on them. And then he said the remarkable thing, unless you all repent, you will likewise perish. Seemed like a tough lesson. But Jesus was trying to show that we're all caught up in the effects of sin and the death that comes because of sin. We can't escape it. Whether we die quietly in our beds at at age 98 or a tower falls on our head tomorrow, the effects of sin and suffering and pain are something we're all going to go through in various ways, and we're not worse sinners because it happens. You see, the worst assumption you can ever make is to expect that every specific suffering or pain or difficulty or tragedy is traceable directly to some particular sin. Now, listen to me because I want to say to you, it is beneficial at one level to ask the question, did somebody sin here? You know, if a a drunk driver, twice the level of blood alcohol allowable for drunkenness, runs a stoplight and kills a member of my family, I can ask the question, who sinned here? And it has an obvious answer. And the answer produces a civil penalty that individual has to face. And it also 
really confronts that individual with a spiritual issue, he should repent for having personally caused great harm. So there are times when the question, who sinned here, does have an answer. I'm not suggesting it never has an answer. It may have a direct answer. So you should ask it. But if you do ask it and there is no apparent answer, you might ask a wise Christian, you know, am I missing something here? Is it my sin that made this? And the wise Christian says, look, I can't see any reason why this happened to you. Then I'll tell you what you need to do. Move on. And don't live at the level of that question, pondering it and punishing yourself or maybe punishing somebody else for hopelessly tangled cause and effect relationships between things that have to be left in a, in a vast abyss of mystery for now until the last judgment sorts them out. All right. Who's in here is a question to be asked. But once it is answered, if it can be answered, move on. Secondly, notice the words of Jesus in John 9.3, and this is really important. Having disclaimed that there was any direct cause-effect linkage in the case of this blind man, born blind, he said, look, I'm not so concerned about the cause. I'm concerned about outcomes. This happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. Don't thrash yourself over the cause. Look at the potential outcome and glimpse in suffering, in pain, God's good government, even over evil and pain. Now, people say, all right, now you're getting into this God can control these things. Well, I doubt that because if he could control them, what he should do is stop them from happening. You see that? People say, well... All right, we know everybody's a sinner and sin has consequences, but God should stop all the consequences, at least where I and my family are concerned. I don't care what happens to the people in Bangladesh, right? No, nobody says that, but they really don't care what happens to the people in Bangladesh. God just stop the consequences for me and stop them now because it hurts and I don't want to hurt. And God, if you don't stop it, you're not powerful and maybe the worst deduction, you're not real at all. Well, there is a way to address this that asks if God doesn't perhaps have a way to show us, teach us, and instruct us when we're suffering pain to see that he is indeed in the final and ultimate way in good control over these things eventually, and they can lead to redemptive effects. I think of so many illustrations that would be possible. One occurs to me about King David. I've been rereading David's life in First and Second Samuel and just contemplating it, hoping to actually, I'll tantalize you, to come back to the life of David as a sermon series before too long. Did that quite a few years ago, but we'll come back to it. David, you know, you think here's a guy a golden boy. He had everything going for him. His statue by Michelangelo is, is touted as the statue of the perfect human being. And you kind of think, well, okay, David just had so many gifts, and God just laid everything on a silver platter for him. And that's not the David I read about. I read about David late in his teenage years, bursting with energy, bursting with abilities, about age 20, he gets anointed, and he's told by Samuel, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And he would think, wow, where do I go to get measured for my robe and my crown? What happened next? 
10 years a fugitive. 10 years, all of his 20s, his young manhood, chased up and down the wilderness by Saul, persecuted, almost killed. He had to become an outlaw. He had to actually go live with his enemies, the Philistines. He gave up hope many times. He was totally frustrated. But out of that time, those fires of persecution and rejection and outlaw experience, God hardened a leader who was unlike any leader. God brought a result out of David's suffering that was great. Pain and suffering have a way of shaping us, getting our attention, turning our attention to God. A book that came out a number of years ago is still a very good one on this subject called Where is God When It Hurts? Sure, it's in our church library. It, it talks about the, the work of a medical doctor, Paul Brand. Brand said some things that should have been very obvious, but when I first read them, they, they struck me as very important spiritual lessons. He talked about the nerve endings of our bodies and how important our nerves are to protect us every day from, from grabbing a hot pan that would sear the skin off our, or cutting our, you know, if the, finger, if the knife and my wife I'm surprised my wife has any fingers left at all, but she's always cutting herself. But when the knife starts to cut, I know there's pain, and it stops her before the whole tip of the finger goes. Thank God for our nerve endings that cause pain. Dr. Brand says pain has to hurt us as much as it does, or our dangerous environment would soon destroy us. Now, that sounds very similar to what Hebrews 12, 11 says. No discipline from God seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it, those who are willing to slow down and ask God what he's doing in the midst of this painful thing. Suffering as a way of stripping away our rebel independence that says, I can do it without you, God. It puts us on our face and says, God, what shall I do? So many of you know the life of Johnny Erickson Tata. I used to refer to her as a young woman, but she's my age, so she's not young anymore. Uh, Johnny, who has been in a wheelchair for 50 years. Why? Because in a single moment of a night out with friends on the Chesapeake Bay, she dove in a place where it wasn't wise to dive, and that momentary mistake broke her neck. So we look at Johnny and say, who sinned here, Lord? And I say, what good is that question? The question is, look what God has done to display his work in that life. A life of a woman who has never been able to move her fingers or her toes in almost 50 years has had the work of God displayed in it. Johnny herself said this about her grace-filled, Christ-centered life. She said, suffering pushed all kinds of extraneous, unimportant matters right out of my focus. Before my accident, I was always working to, quote, make room for God in my busy teenage life. Suddenly, Christ, my Savior, and a helpless body were all I had, and I slowly learned He was all I needed. You don't learn that except in suffering. Finally then, 
if we're going to consider the outcomes rather than the causes, I would say to you the great biblical key to the problem of pain and suffering is, without a doubt, the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, Mr. Agnostic, your idea that God is aloof or indifferent to our groaning is false. He sent his eternally generated Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to enter the depths of this suffering, pain-filled planet. And Jesus did that knowing that in coming he was going to take willfully upon himself the horror of the cross to pay the penalty of others' sin so that others who would believe in him would have their spiritual penalty of death canceled. You and I are going to taste bitter-tasting droplets of tragedy on the ends of our tongues. And you might say to me, how dare you talk that way? Have you ever seen someone die of ALS? Yes, I have. I remember going to visit a woman who was a stranger to me, but someone had asked that I visit her at a cancer ward in a hospital far from here. And I didn't know her, and I went and prayed with her and found she was a believer and visited with her before she was to have a tumor removed from behind her eye. She was a lovely woman, probably about 50, I guess. I was much younger at that time. And uh, I came back. She had surgery to have the tumor removed. I came back to see her again. And I remember how stunned I was when I entered her room. I'm sure it showed on my face because there she lay. Her hair was perfectly coiffed. She looked like she'd been to the hairdresser. And again, she was a very pretty woman. And she had no eye. And she had no bandage where her eye should be. She had a hole where her eye was. And I was stunned that God should let a lovely woman of 50 have an eye removed like that. And I tried, I struggled not to, not to show her. I thought immediately, I, I can't look horrified because she will see it. But I was horrified at what people have to suffer. Ladies and gentlemen, the cross is a unique solution to the problem of pain. God cannot be charged either with not caring or with failing to act. He did care and he did act. And at Calvary, he won a victory over the jaws of evil and the ultimate evil that brings about human pain and suffering so that at the end of time it will all be resolved. And I find whenever I'm overcome by somebody else's suffering or my own, which has never been all that great, I've taken my eyes off the cross. And if I will just get my eyes back on the cross, my perspective comes back and I can't pity myself any longer. I want you to see a little thing before I close here. The blind man was healed by Jesus. I haven't gone into what was done, the mud and all of that. That's for another time. But here in verses 8 and 9, after he was healed, look what his neighbor said. Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And I, I, I can't help but chuckle at the, the answer of some others. Oh, no, it only looks like him. Why did they say that? Because he was the same, but he was different. God had done a new thing. And we see this as a likeness of the new birth of Christ. We come back to people 
having found Christ, and I can think of some of you who've been through a relatively sudden adult conversion, and I won't name names, but, you know, you, I'm sure you went back to people, and they said, is that guy, is that George? <laughs> and somebody would say, well, I don't know, you know, he's kind of looks like George, but he's different. That's what happens when we come to Christ. We get a new life. If any man or woman is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. He's the same, but he's different. God transforms us even from great suffering. And one day he's going to transform us absolutely, completely, and give us new bodies that are grand and glorious like his own. We don't have that yet, but we have the guarantee of it in Christ himself. And so here's a former blind man giving us a last word for today. There's so much more that could be said, but this man says, look, let me say one thing to you guys questioning me the way you are. This one thing I know. I was blind, now I see. How do you dispute that? And we say that about Christ. We know this. Because Jesus lived out our tragedy, died our death, rose in power, he is the one who transforms his people out of hopeless, pitiful pain and suffering into great hope and a magnificent future with himself. He's even transforming our bodies and our souls so that one day they'll be like his. So Christians are formerly blind people who know something. Here's a couple of the things we know. We know once I was blind, but now I see. We know whom we have believed and that he is able to keep what we've committed unto him against that final day. We know that in Christ we have passed out of death into life. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who are the called ones according to God's purposes in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't tell us the cause of suffering. If you demand that, you're making a foolish demand. But he certainly shows us the goals that suffering can have. And we know now that every man or woman who is his new creation is moving towards that final hour when the Scripture says in its second last chapter, he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the old order of things will have passed away. This I know. Thanks be to God. Our Father, help your people. Somebody here is really struggling with knowing that you care about their situation. It doesn't seem like it because they've been hurting a long time or there hasn't been an answer to their physical affliction and one isn't apparent. Somebody here is in real difficult relational problems with a family member or a spouse or their job, or the, the job they used to have, and they don't have one now. Somebody's suffering, and they're saying, does God know? Does he care? Is there anything he can do? Thank you for the cross. 
because there we get our perspective. Father, care for your people. Draw them close to yourself. Encourage them and lead them to a new trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.